From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. And we've got a great episode for you today. Not one, not two, but three awesome guests. But before we get into it, if you like what you hear today, please subscribe to Film Forward on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from for weekly episodes. We interview filmmakers with new theatrical releases. We do themed Gimme Three episodes. And of course, we highlight all things LADFF. So like, subscribe, comment. We've got plenty coming up for you, and we've got plenty in our archives as well. As I mentioned, though, we've got three incredible guests today to discuss their web series, Story Nosh. We have director Aisha Wax, producer Daphna Scholl, and returning guest, frequent Gimme Three master, David Chu, all joining us today. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So Story Nosh, this is a really great, fun concept. Daphna, if you can, for those who don't know, tell tell the audience what Story Nosh is. Sure. Well, Story Nosh is a digital competition put on by the Braid Theater in Los Angeles, California. We at the Braid do kind of an immersive combination of storytelling and now with Story Nosh storytelling and theater, storytelling, and film. So Story Nosh is a four-part series, and we have professional actors perform a written work by writers who submit to us. And it's a bite-sized kind of grab-and-go on YouTube. You can watch these stories as you please. We have four themes. We have courage, passion, animals, and identity. And we are running these over the course of about six months. So it's a really exciting uh, new adventure for us at the Braid. And it's it's great to kind of add a cinematic film element to storytelling and just kind of utilizing our our, our thematic way of doing stories and, and applying it to the digital age. Yeah, it's a really great idea. And it's fun because it invites a lot of collaboration. You have writers submitting stories. These writers get to see you know, potentially their stories filmed and performed. Judging from the four that I've watched, it seems like y'all are getting some really like personal and heartfelt story submissions. So I'm curious, what's your selection process like? Because I, I imagine it's not it's not easy to to settle on just four. No, it's not. We have honorable mentions actually because we get so many great submissions, but Ultimately, what we're looking for is a story that has real heart, that will touch people, that will connect in a really authentic way. And us as a literary team, so David, myself, and then our artistic director at the Braid, Rhonda Spinak, we and an advisory council who also helps us. There's a bunch of people on board and, and we receive the submissions and then we read through them and we, we look at ones that, um, you know are, are well-written definitely impact us if uh, the story kind of has a beginning, middle, and end to, be, to begin with. But we're also just, again, looking for stories that have potential. We really work hard to 
kind of get the story and hone it in. We call it adapting. It's also really editing it down into the core of what the story is. And then we kind of vote on it within ourselves and within the group. And the ultimate decision comes down to us. And at the end of the day, we really want those pieces to to shine. So we always encourage writers who don't get into the process to continue to submit because you never know when your story will really resonate at the right moment and be the, you know, be the right time for your story to be, to be shown. You know, if I might add in all three of us, Daphna, Aisha, and myself have had the experience of, of writing works that have been dramatized for the stage through the braid. And that's what we normally do. We now are branching out as Daphna was saying into the cinematic experience. But one of the things, you know, yeah, the three of us all work creatively in the arts. But one of the other things I love about Story Nosh is that it's open to everyone, whether you're a professional writer, whether you're an artistic person, or you're just an ordinary person with an incredible story to tell. And so it's allowed us to get story because it's all about putting an actor up there performing somebody's words. We can afford, you know, we don't have the same budget limitations. You know, we don't have to like, uh, you know, build a battleship if somebody's story were to take place on a battleship or whatever. So we can, we can really get people's authentic stories from across all sorts of walks of life. So we have, for example, a story coming up in our next installment that I believe will be the first transgender author that the Braid has given life to in there in its history. We've had, you know, a young Asian American woman who's a friend of mine, Vanessa, who has a story in our most recent installment, Courage. And so we're showcasing a lot of both diversity in terms of marginalized groups, but also just diversity in terms of walks of life. So you have people from all sorts of jobs, you know, engineers, doctors, you know, construction workers, whatever, who can all submit their story and have their unique, true experiences told. And I think that's one of the things I find really exciting. Yeah, that's really, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's such a great format and a great collaborative tool for storytelling. Aisha, if you can, take us into your process once you get the stories. What's your process from a directing standpoint in terms of like breaking down that story and collaborating with the actors that you choose to perform the stories. It's very practical because we shoot all four stories on one day. So it's casting first because we need to have people in mind who can fill the role, who can do a great job, and who are also all available on a specific day for us to shoot. So I come at it from a very practical way at first, and then I go into the story. Obviously, I'm also looking at who will be And Daphna and David are a great resource of who is going to be good in what role. I think that having worked on a ton of web series, (laughs) casting is so hard because it's so much about availability. So, you know, a lot of times with one of the pieces in our first Courage shoot, it was asking a bunch of people who turned down just because they're not simply available on that specific day. So being equipped and being ready to be like, okay, we have, you know, our, our top choice and our second choice and our third and maybe a fifth if we need to get there. (laughs) Um, So that's my biggest priority at first. And then it's looking at the script, working on it. We usually have two to three rehearsals with the actors before we get on set, which I find super, super helpful and something you don't necessarily get to do when you film all the time, but 
it makes it so that when we get on set, I don't have as much to do directing wise because they already know the direction that I'm going in. Yeah, that's a real luxury to have the rehearsal time and rehearsal process. It like makes such a huge difference. Do you collaborate or do you uh, touch base with the writers at all before you guys go in? I'm sure collectively you guys do touch base with the writers like before you go into production on these things. What is that like? What do you what do you guys talk to the writers about once they're selected and you decide to pick one of their pieces? I typically am the the one to be in contact with the writers and I love that process because you really get to kind of humanize the experience even more. You get to speak with the person who wrote this story and they they typically give you even more context to why they wrote the story, what they were experiencing, who they are. And we will go back and forth with them if we have any literary changes that we make. You know, we do a first big sweep typically of the piece and and kind of whittle it down because our stories are, you know, on average, we like them to be about five minutes. So if they wrote a longer piece, you know, we have to cut it down. And so it's about communication of explaining that and also of them being comfortable with the changes that we made or if they want to add something or adjust something that we did. And it's a beautiful collaborative process. There's no ego involved in any of it. It's really about the story and about serving the story in the best way possible. And I think that the writers that I talk to are not only okay with that, but they're, I found that they're pretty appreciative that we care so much about the story and about the words and that we hold true to that. And I, I just love getting to know these people because often a lot of their stories are very emotional. And so I get to kind of dive in a little bit and hear about their life. And it's just a, a beautiful experience overall. I should add too, we have a policy that the writer has to sign off on any changes to their original work. You would think this might cause some challenges, but actually not. Like there's a low level of trust, exactly what Daphne's talking about, where, you know, we trust the writer's voice and if our writer trusts us to make their voice, to shape their voice into the best version of it it can be. I think too, you know, this is where when we have the rehearsals, a lot of our rehearsals are spent talking about the dialogue and seeing what works because these literary pieces have never been read out loud. And a lot of times uh, certain writers are good at capturing dialogue, but certain writers are not those type of writers. And so it can be something that seems kind of wordy or difficult to say. So it's helpful and we obviously get the approval, but it's it's great to hear it out loud because then we can be like, ooh, that sounds strange. Let's fix it. Yeah, sometimes eloquence is uh, not the most natural way to speak. <laughs> you know, and sometimes <laughs> great writers are, are, you know, beautifully eloquent on the page, but sometimes that doesn't uh, translate to uh, performance. Exactly. Yeah. There was one story that kind of struck me and it, and it got me thinking about the other stories. And it was the shark tooth necklace story. And as I said, I think all of them highlight this, but it was just the importance of how impactful small moments can be. How like seemingly one insignificant moment to one person could end up being a, a very empowering moment and uplifting moment, life-changing moment for another person and vice versa. It could be in a negative way. So that that story really resonated with me. And I started like kind of going back and thinking of like 
little tiny moments in my life that ended up changing my direction or changing my life that were, uh, you know, possibly to the other person just th- throw away moments that they may not even remember. But I thought that was really a powerful revelation that I took away from this. You know, it's interesting. You would think with stories that we would need, every story would have to be about something huge, a death, an affair, you know, a whatever, a war. But the interesting thing, actually, after having worked on a lot of these stories is so many powerful stories can be about those, like you said, those micro moments, those things that like don't seem to, to be really easily like what you would imagine being dramatized. Right. And I think so, that's the power of the sort of interesting, unique art form. And while you're seeing the sort of elevation of storytelling happening in our culture, whether it's the moth or other kind of ways in which sto- the, the art of really storytelling is being expanded across mediums. And honestly, that's really a return to what we as humans did at the very beginning of human civilization, tell each other stories around the campfire. That's what we're doing and just creating it in a way that, you know, the world can experience it. But a story allows you to kind of blend that distinction between the internal and the external. It allows you to experience things that can be just psychological and not just physical and yet it can also do that in a dramatic way. So it's really, it's an exciting nexus, I think, of sort of literature, storytelling, and film. Yeah, yeah, very awesome. It sounds like actually all three of you, from what I have seen in your credits, are pulling double duty, perhaps triple duty. <laughs> you know, like, uh, Daphna, you're you're shooting the episodes as, as well as, you know, like show running. David, same thing, yeah. you're show running, but you're also you know, uh, the sound mixer, re-recording mixer. Talk to us about wearing multiple hats on the set and how do you know which one to wear and when? <laughs> sure. I love that question because it's true. I, um, you know, I had my mom recently ask me like, well, what are you doing, you know, during the shoot? And I'm like, well, I'm the camera operator and cinematographer, you know, um, uh, as along with being the literary, uh, being on the literary team, kind of literary managing and producing and getting food and um, color correcting afterwards. There's just, with, with such a small team, you really have to step up and, and really try and hone some new skills, you know, and collaborate. We work for a nonprofit, a beautiful nonprofit, but that also means that, you know, the budget is tight and that we have to step it up. And I actually love it. I mean, I love that we are also kind of ingrained in the creative process from beginning to end, you know, it's very rare that as, you know, young professionals, we can say that we were doing something, you know, literally from the call to submission, the ideas for what the stories, you know, the story themes are going to be, or what, what we're looking for all the way until the final product gets put up on, on YouTube. And then David has his hand in marketing it. It's, it's, it really feels like we're owning it. And I, uh, I really appreciate that a lot. I also have to give a shout out. It's not in the credits, but Asia and Nick, you can relate to this. Asia is her own AD, which are usually those two big hats are very hard to wear at the same time. And right. I'm just like, <laughs> uh, of Asia's ability to both think creatively and also to think, okay, 
what do we need to do in order to keep us on schedule? <laughs> well, right. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's. I think it's a, a skill of like producing a lot of stuff and shooting a lot of stuff really quickly that we get what we get and we have to like, we're going to do the best that we can to get amazing things. And sometimes we're not, and we're going to have to keep moving and it's okay if it's imperfect. Yeah. I think the fact that we all are so ingrained in it is there's so much trust across the board. There's so much trust in everybody doing their job, you know, not only sufficiently, but really taking it seriously and as a responsibility and because we have to move so quickly as well. So that aspect, and then also just the trust in each other as people and the appreciation for each other and literally seeing each other sweat, you know, like literal sweat and the whole process just being really intense. It requires the trust and the friendship. And I think we've gotten to know each other so much better through this whole experience and we'll continue to do so. It's a beautiful family that we've created. I think that's so true. I mean, I have to say one of the things, this is the least hierarchical film set I've been on. And maybe it's because we all wear multiple hats and we all have that friendship, but like, there's just a sense that we're a team in it together And it's not about like who's more important than who or who's this or who's that. It's just a group of of friends, honestly, coming together to create something. And there's a really an incredible bond that happens. That's beautiful. And it's so awesome to hear. And there's nothing like, you know, being on a set where that ego is removed and you're in a place of love and trust. What it does, not only does it benefit, I think, the project that you're working on at that moment, but it sets the groundwork for like when all of you go on to whatever your next project's going to be or five years down the line, 10 years down the line, you know the kind of environment that you want to create and you know the kind of like people that you want to work with. And it helps you, from my experience, be able to weed out some of that negative energy that uh, is ultimately pretty unproductive in a creative environment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we have a lot of fun too. Um, I will say that the first, the first project, the first shoot that we did was our, our theme of courage And that was a little more stressful because it was our first shoot and there were a lot of stairs at the location we were working at. So it was like a workout (laughs) in itself. Um, That was, I would say, the the trial run for for us just to get our feet wet and how this process is going to work. And then the second time, I think we all were able to uh, settle down and really kind of sink into our positions for when we just shot our passion theme. So every time it kind of gets better and better, but we always manage to, you know, make each other laugh and have fun. And at the end of the day, create great work as well as have a really positive experience. And in life, what is the point if you're stressed out and exhausted and feeling vulnerable in all the wrong ways? You know, I think we really create a a really safe space for everyone, including the actors who come and work with us. Truer words never spoken, Daphna. The Story Nosh episodes, they're available right now on YouTube. I actually watched them on my television last night on the, on the bigger screen. Easy to find. Check them out. Story Nosh. We're going to take a quick break, everybody. When we come back, we're going to have Aisha, Daphna, and David each give us a film recommendation for a special edition collective. Give me three. We'd like to take a minute to talk about LADFF sponsor, E-Minutes. 
E-Minutes is a corporate entertainment law firm that handles the corporate minutes for more than 38,000 entities involved in the entertainment industry. Like last year, they're sponsoring an award with the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival called the Emerging Filmmaker Award. You can learn more about our partnership with E-Minutes Arts and their mission to amplify the voices of underrepresented storytellers at eminutes.com forward slash arts. That's eminutes.com forward slash arts. Hello, I'm Sonia, and this is my Movie Minute. I saw Jackass Forever this week, and I seriously cannot remember the last time I laughed that hard. It was so great to see the guys back together, and even better because they had new, more diverse faces joining them, bringing some fresh, young, and less beat-up bodies into the Jackass fold. They made a point to remind us a few times that they had been doing this for upwards of 20 years, with the CKY videos even predating that. But instead of seeming old, it was a celebration of long-lasting friendship, the kind that can only be forged by playing with each other's bodies and risking your lives together for the sake of fun, glory, and cash. Not that I want to act like Jackass forever with some deep, life-affirming story of friendship in the face of adversity, though maybe it is. What it is, is a gross, hilarious, impressive, and sometimes nail-biter collection of stunts and other dangerous and absurd activities created for our viewing pleasure. It delivers on 100% of its promises and exceeds expectations. And not to worry, despite being upward of 50 years old, they still enjoy endlessly playing with their private parts and the private parts of their friends. Though, I guess on Jackass, technically there are no private parts. All parts are fair game. Go see Jackass Forever right now, only in theaters. It's worth seeing it with an audience. That was my minute. Thanks for listening. Francis hits harder than any heavyweight in MMA. I told Aaron it was a lightweight. That's not a lightweight. What are you talking about? All right. Welcome back to Film Forward, everybody. We are here with Story Nosh director, Aisha Wax, producers, Daphna Scholl and David Chu. They're each going to give us one film that has inspired them or inspired their work or just films they love. And we're going to get it going here. Since David is our, you know, film forward, give me three master. Why don't you start us off, David? Well, thanks. I figure, you know, I've come here and I've, I've mentioned a lot of movies. So I'm going to mention my favorite movie of all time. And it's actually something that's really informed this project in some surprising ways. My favorite movie is a film called Chunking Express. It was made in the 90s. I think it was like 95 or something by one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, Wong Kar Wai. And he made this film actually while he was working on this big martial arts epic called Ashes of Time. And the project is taking forever and it's exhausting and I think he's feeling kind of demoralized. And he goes to a bunch of his collaborators and friends and he says, let's just make a movie. We're going to take three weeks. We're going to shoot this movie. And whereas the martial arts epic is costumes and sets and period piece stuff, this is just in like people's little apartments and in like a little like food shop and, you know, all sorts of like very down to earth, very ordinary story. And of course, Wong Kar Wai, he typically loves to improvise a lot. He has this very fluid filmmaking style where he, people just kind of go with the flow. And then he in the editing room is where he can, turns, constructs it into a piece of artwork. It creates a sort of very loose feeling 
to a lot of his films, and this film especially. There's it's two stories that at first seem to have nothing to do with each other, other than their stories about love. They both play, take place in Hong Kong. They're both involved police officers. One is about a young man who's pining away for this mysterious gangster woman, you know, with glasses and, and she just, you know, sunglasses, and she seems cooler than cool. Uh, and the other is uh, a story about another police officer who falls in love, who actually he has a falls in love with a flight attendant and he's still pining for this relationship that's fallen apart. But in the meantime, he's having these interactions with a woman at a kind of a hole in the wall restaurant that he goes to. And you, you know, you're spending a lot of the movie waiting for them to get together because you're like, Oh, they're perfect together. But he's still in love with the flight attendant, and so he can't quite see her, the you know, new possibility right in front of him. And in this, there are just these incredible moments of like lyrical beauty, and it's almost I want to say magic realism, but if there's almost these flights of fancy that happen, like at one point he's you know imagines he's speaking to all the household objects in his apartment, and he's like looking at his like yeah howl and he's like oh you're getting so thin you're wasting away and that's really him projecting how he's feeling about this you know internally about this relationship that's going wrong and then in something that probably if the genders were reversed this would be really uncomfortable but in in an interesting turn of fate the the woman at the restaurant the waitress breaks into his apartment and like you know fixes up the place like she gives him a fluffier new towel and she replaces his soap and then he's looking at the towel and he's like oh you've let yourself go you've gotten you've gotten too fat Um, (laughs) and there's a sort of like humorous beauty to it and and it's got this hand this handheld camera work it's got this sort of like very almost uh, it's very precise the editing style but it's got this effortless editing style by the way fascinating talk about wearing multiple hats his production designer is also his editor wow yeah, it's a really interesting, again, that kind of reminds me of what Daphne was talking about, about Story Nash, about friends coming together to really create something. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I love about Story Nash is that in a world where film projects can take forever to get off the ground, where um, there's so many, you know, Hollywood politics and intricacies that have to do to get anything made and, and have any dream realized. One of the neat things about Story Nash is it really has that sort of energy of a bunch of people coming together going let's just make something and creating it and being able to put it out there out into the world without having to jump through all those hoops i think because we are so lean and mean and i think this film chunking express really exemplifies that to me the sort of joy of filmmaking there's i think um a quote by quentin tarantino where he said he something like he wept because he didn't know it was possible to love a movie this much there's such a about this uh, this film. It had been a, a really long time since I had seen this and I revisited it. And yeah, it, it hit me in a way more powerful way than it had the first time I watched it. Especially a few weeks removed, I had just rewatched In the Mood for Love and you can kind of see him exercising that like butterfly feeling love story that only he can make. But one thing, when I was watching it this time, there was one thing that I could not get out of my mind while I was watching this. I have absolutely no way to prove this but I'm going to say it as a fact anyway. I believe that Haruki Murakami, the brilliant Japanese writer, is heavily influenced by this film because I have been reading a lot of his work lately after watching Drive My Car, in particular, 
the collection of short stories, Men Without Women, which was the collection of short stories that uh, was adapted for Drive My Car. There are so many parallels between those short stories and this film down to like some of the actions of the characters thematically, like the, the collection of short stories is called Men Without Women. And we see what men are like without women in that story and in this film. And uh, spoiler alert, they're miserable. <laughs> it was uh, a fresh and fascinating lens that I was able to rewatch this film with. It provided me with like a much more substantive uh, viewing experience. Great, great, great film. A total masterpiece. Wow, I'm going to have to check out that collection by Mark Tommy. Oh my gosh, I'll, I'll let you borrow it, David. You're going to freaking yeah. love it. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'll jump in and just say I love Murakami because in high school, my my 12th grade English teacher had us read his short stories. And then I, I actually had to write a story in his style, a short oh my. story of my own. And it was a really cool experience. And yeah, his, his mind works in very mysterious ways. He's a great writer and a really interesting and thoughtful kind of observer of the world, which I love about his writing. Yeah, incredible stuff, as is Chunking Express. If you haven't seen it, for the love of God, check it out. It is available right now on the Criterion channel, and there's a whole collection of Wong Kar Wai films on the Criterion channel. They have them all in one playlist for you. So when you love Chunking Express, go right on to the next one. All right, who's next? Who, who's, who wants to talk about their pick next? I'll go. Nice. We'll do it. My pick... I'll give a little context. I had never seen this movie before, but at the beginning of pandemic before HBO max came out. So in the, in in the very beginning, I was just watching TCM has an app, a separate app. And I was just watching tons of stuff on TCM app. And I watched this 1937 film dead end. It is a William Wyler directed movie. The screenplay is by Lillian Hellman. And it's kind of similar to what David was saying, it's kind of this story about the intersection of wealth and poverty in an area of New York that is kind of getting gentrified. And it was a crazy movie to watch because you're like, oh my God, this movie is happening right now because it w- it's like the same block, all the poor people in the slums are and all of the uh, wealthy people in that neighborhood are like moving into that neighborhood. And it's about the interaction between them and how stuck the poor people feel. And Humphrey Bogart plays a gangster who comes back to town and people don't want to forgive him. All the performances are great. And I went to UC Irvine and uh, the theater department is named for Claire Trevor. And I'd never seen her in anything. And she plays his ex-girlfriend who's a prostitute in this movie. And she's like, super crazy, super all over the place. And I was like, well, I am very proud to come from Claire Trevor's school. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, this is a really, really great film. I haven't seen it in in quite some years, but I, I remember it hitting really hard. And I actually should rewatch it because I'm writing a script right now about gentrification. But I just remember there was like a bunch of films that came out like 10, 15 years or so you know, like the post-depression American films that are are kind of like, you know, America's version of like Italian neorealism after the war. But so many of them have kind of like fallen by the wayside or they're not really talked about. And I'm not really sure why, but this is one of them. And it's just like, 
like you said, it stands the test of time. Like this film could totally be made or written right now. And you'd be like, good God, this is like, what an uncomfortable time we're living in. But this was, <laughs> you know, 90 or 80 some years ago. Crazy. Yeah, it was just crazy. And it, they built this entire set. So like you have all this, it's like you feel trapped watching the movie, which I yeah. really thought was cool because you can't escape the set, which is where they're shooting everything. And like, it's these like decrepit slums that are falling apart next to like these beautiful mansions. So mm-hmm. yeah, go to, go, go to, go to downtown LA right now. And you're going to see <laughs> pretty oh much the God. exact same thing. You're yeah. sk- skid row on, on, on one block and two blocks up, you have these like five-star restaurants and um, you know, all these new high rises going up that are, you know, selling for a million bucks. It's an insane, an insane world we live in. Yeah, it was crazy to watch too because I was like, this is the most communistic movie I've ever watched. And (laughs) it takes place in the 30s. Uh, It basically is like wealth is destroying all of us. And I was like, how did I stumble on this? And it was really impactful to watch and be like, whoa, I think that great art, like you're saying, stands the test of time and is telling all of these stories over and over again. And you know, trying to get away from that, but really reckoning with the fact that we're doing the same thing to the poor people in our country. Yeah, absolutely. I believe now it is on HBO Max. It's so crazy to think that HBO Max is not but a couple years old. Yeah, <laughs> it's like came out during the pandemic. It's, yeah, well. yeah. Their TCM hub is enormous, but I find that a little unwieldy. So yeah, um, right. That's my only critique of, I mean, they have like every movie, but then you're like looking through and you're like, what am I going to watch? It's too much choice. It's it's too much. It is too much. That's, you know, check it out. It's a great source. They have a lot, but that's kind of why I like the Criterion channel because they like have these programs, you know, these collections of like, hey, New York stories. It's like, oh yeah, cool. We'll watch a bunch of New York stories and they separate them by director and category and stuff. It's a little bit more cohesive. (laughs) <laughs> but but in any case, if you want to see it, you can uh, brave the HBO Max library and check it out. An, an incredible film. Excellent, excellent choice, Asia. Thank you. All right. And last but not least, Daphna, give us yeah. our, our third and final pick. Bring us home. Okay. So my pick is Bicentennial Man. It was released in, I believe, like 1999. And it stars Robin Williams as a robot who's bought by a wealthy family and the family kind of discovers that he has something special about him and they take him in and kind of they let him shine in all of these you know weird uh humanistic ways that they never expected and and the robot company can't understand why he's got something special about him you know he likes he's creative he likes to whittle animals out of wood and he's very sweet and kind and not kind of just like a prototype or a you know a a a standard robot that they have been sending out to people and he becomes part of the family and over the years kind of wants to become a human. And it's about his transition into becoming the human he's always wanted to be. And, you know, one of the beautiful things about this movie that always makes me cry, even thinking about it, 
And it's funny. I'm, I mean, I don't, I don't come to tears very easily. Like I feel a lot, but I don't cry a lot. And I can literally watch like a scene in this movie and I am bawling. Like I am crying because he is watching everyone around him die who he loves. Right. And he can't cry. He doesn't have, you know, he doesn't have tear ducts. Like he can't cry. He can express himself. And so that's really what takes him on the journey to want to become a human. He finds this man who's doing this, all of this research and kind of inventive technology to basically harvest organs and um, turn, he can try and turn this robot Andrew into a human being. But the one thing that Andrew will never have is a human brain, because if he replaces the brain, then he's not himself anymore. And so it's about at the end of the movie, him wanting to be basically confirmed by the Senate, I think of the United States in this futuristic society. Uh, He wants to be declared a human being. And I won't give away the ending, but it's, it's all very beautiful. It's just a really touching film. It's directed by Chris Columbus and it, the music is by the late, great James Horner, who I love and was so devastated when he passed away because I, I wanted him to write the, mu- the music for the movie that I'm, I've been writing for a really long time. So that was heartbreaking too. And it, it mattered a lot to me to be able to, to be moved so deeply as a kid and all I had to do was watch the movie and I could be just swept away in it. So that is my choice. Yeah. It's an excellent choice. You know, like we all knew Robin Williams was great while he was alive and here he was like so versatile and did so many things, but it's like really impactful to like go back and like watch his work and like how much different, just how talented he was. Like he had so much in his arsenal. Like I was rewatching Goodwill Hunting not too long ago, and I was like, "God Almighty! Like this is an unbelievable performance." And he, right. like in this film, he just like he does these things that it's just like, how in the hell is he creating this performance? Like he just disappears into this role, and it's un, it's, it's like it's really actually quite unfathomable to me. I don't know how he does it, but it's. It's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I think he had so much depth to him that he couldn't, the world just couldn't, you know, the world was too much for him is, is what I, I, you know, think. And I remember when he passed away, you know, I remember I was with a, a former boss of mine and I was like, I, you know, got a notification on my phone and it was like, Robin Williams, you know, has died. And I told them and they were like, what? Like everyone was just shocked. It just, it was an unfathomable thing to happen because he was so, he was such a, like a cornerstone of our society and of what it means to be a good person and, and a versatile actor. And, and any team was in so many films that people loved and just will watch over and over and over again. And that's because of him. So it's even more meaningful now that he's passed away to watch that movie and know that, you know, he gave me a gift of, feeling so so deeply really about about a character and wanting just wanting to see this character succeed and and win you know at the end of the day and yeah it taught me a lot about what it means to be a human being and what it and what matters i haven't watched it in a little while but i you know again like it it really does always make me cry so i have to be in the right the right mindset to watch that film it's good to have those in the pocket just like fuck i need i need to cry this week like, what yeah. am I going to put on? You, know? <laughs> you just got to really have upset, those. <laughs> but I haven't cried, so I need to cry. I'm going to put yeah. Bicentennial Man on. I have a, a, a little story about the movie as well. Like I, When I first moved out to LA, I had a meeting through someone with some agents just to like talk to them and kind of pick their brain or whatever. 
and some literary agents. And they asked what one of my favorite movies was. And I said, Bicentennial Man. And they like laughed at me. And I remember thinking to myself, like, first of all, it, I mean, it was, a, you know, it's an uncomfortable situation to be in. But I just remember walking out and thinking, like, they don't get it. You know, right. there's something that they don't get. And it's OK that not everybody, you know, appreciates the same films. We all have different tastes or whatever. But for something to matter and mean so much to one person and then for it to kind of be rejected by somebody else just offhand without even like really thinking about it from them. I don't know. It put it into perspective for me that number one, you're not going to please everybody. And number two, stick to your guns about what you feel matters to you and what you, what moves you because that matters, you know, and I'm sure it has moved other people too. And I listened to the music from that film when I write screenplays and it takes me to the place that I need to go. And so, you know, stick to your guns, stick to what you love and everyone else can just, you know, whatever, just fuck off. Exactly. I hate that. I hate like, you know, if this movie is impactful and important to you, who is somebody else to say that it's not good enough? Like that is the snobbishness that I don't think is a great part of film community. Like whatever someone likes and is helpful is great. Exactly. And I think it closes your mind off from being able to learn you know, sometimes I, I I don't like a movie and somebody is like, this is my favorite movie. And I'm like, oh, why? And then in learning, whether or not, in, in them explaining why, I'll learn about the person, I'll learn about life. I'll, whether or not I, I change my opinion about the movie, I always learn from those conversations. And Absolutely. And so I just think to, to act like this, there's a, like a list of good movies and a list of bad movies and like this is the ultimate list and like if you're, you know, like it's like, you know, whatever trends or whatever, like you said, Asia, it's, it's like the ugly part of the film community that I'd like us to get past because being open-minded and being curious, I think is a much better way to show a love of cinema than to like worry about like what's on, like what you think is the magic list of like the good movies. Right. If everybody's favorite movies were from a select 100 list of films, what a boring, uh, you know, society and human race uh, we would be. Uh, Our art is uh, subjective, you know, and, and this, uh, you know, maybe watch Bicentennial Man, which I hadn't seen since it came out. And, you know, uh, it was awesome to revisit. So you'll get no guff from us, Daphna. You'll get no guff about any of these three films because they're all excellent, excellent choices. Thank you for sharing them with us. David, if you can, one more time, tell our audience where they can find Story Nosh. Sure. If you go to the hyphen braid, like hair braid, B-R-A-I-D dot org, O-R-G slash Story Nosh, story plus N-O-S-H. That website will take you all about, it'll have our latest video, It'll have, or you can find the other videos. If you want to share your own story, it'll have a place for you to actually submit uh, your story to Story Nosh. Or you can go into YouTube, you can type in Story Nosh, and then if you really want to make sure you're getting the right Story Nosh, you can put in Story Nosh, the braid, and you'll find it. Thank you all for joining us here today. It was a lot of fun talking to all of y'all. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you all for listening to Film Forward, and we will catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.